Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sessions. Really excited today to have a special guest with us. His name is Scott Harris. Scott and I met um, at Embark Behavioral Health. I had just finished up a presentation, I believe, that we were doing with some of our staff and talking about overcoming some of the stigma mm -hmm. around mental health. And uh, Scott was gracious enough. We had known each other really well, but gracious enough to stop me and come say hello. And then, uh, yeah, so Scott, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But thank you so much for being on here. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about anxiety, but primarily talk about obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah. Yeah. And you are kind enough that uh, part of the reason I wanted to do this, that Oftentimes, we get experts on who can share their expertise and talk about the facts and the statistics, which is really great. We can do some of that. But this is really about a personal mission for you because I know you said, Rabbi, that's something I, I've actually have some personal experience with. You know, I heard your message and the company's mission to really break down that stigmatism that there is around mental health. And it occurred to me that I, other than some some person that I had dated in the past, I'd really never talked to another adult about obsessive compulsive disorder. And I thought, I can't be the only adult that has this <laughs> and deals with this. And so I thought it'd be interesting to to talk about it publicly so that people get to hear that it's not something that they're dealing with alone. And And I really hope there's some value for people in hearing this. Well, huge value for us, Scott. So thank you so much for uh, spending time with us. I know our uh, our listeners will be extract a ton from this. And thank you for having the courage to share. And really, it's become part of your mission, I guess, in, in your purpose, even working for us, but wanting to help others. Absolutely. I mean, I in addition to working at Embark, I'm also a life coach. So mm. personal development has been a big passion of mine and, and being the best and bringing the best I can, but also in becoming somebody who's compassionate and accepting of who I am and acknowledging that this is part of who I am and helping other people to do the same. You know, this is something I live with. It's something I deal with. Um, and I can be okay about that. And sometimes even funny about it. It doesn't have to be a serious thing, um, even though sometimes it is. I wonder if um, many people who don't really understand or struggle with OCD understand some of the, the loneliness that's associated with it. Sure. I mean, it's something that generally for myself, and I'll just speak for myself, people don't see. You hide it from people. Mm -hmm. And so it is kind of a self-isolating behavior because you have an obsessive thought, you have a compulsive behavior that goes along with it. And then there's also the bit that people don't often think about, which is the embarrassment that you experience around that thing that you do. So, you know, an example of one of mine would be checking my credit card at the gas pump. Did I put my credit card back in my wallet and then in my pocket? And that's something that other people might see me doing. Or when I drive away from my house, did I close the garage? And, you know, if I have to drive back and check the garage door and my neighbor's still standing outside and I just wave goodbye to them and they're wondering, why is he back? <laughs> and he didn't even get back out of his car because I'm checking the garage door. And so there is some embarrassment that goes along with it. And, you know, sometimes I can laugh about that. And other times it's like, you know, it feels a bit weird and cringy. And, you know, I wish I didn't, you know, they didn't have to see me doing that. Yeah. I really appreciate that, Scott. Scott, if we could, let's just, we'll set terms, and then if you wouldn't mind, maybe we'll climb into and better understand your story. Sure. So be okay. 
So uh, when we talk about, usually the term is OCD, stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. Is there anything where that comes to mind for you? Like what, what defines that? What really, how do you know when somebody has this? You know, it's interesting when I hear those words, because like growing up and even into adulthood, I didn't consider myself to have a disorder, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. There was just this thing that I did. Um, and so even hearing that and putting those terms around it is kind of helpful to me. So for I break it down into, you know, the obsessive part. So there's some intrusive thoughts that occur in my OCD. And that's obsessive thinking. And for me, it's okay, did I check this? Did I do this? Did I put my credit card in my in my wallet? Did I turn the faucet off? Did I leave the stove on? Did I close the garage door? And it doesn't matter that I know that I did. That's the obsessive part about it for me is I know oftentimes that I did do that. And the obsessive thought is continuing. Um, and then there's the compulsion which is because I'm having this obsessive thought, there's some anxiety around it. Like if I, if I don't check it, the, you know, the faucet's going to flood the sink and then, you know, the house is going to get water all over the place or the stove is going to catch fire. Or if I leave the garage door open, someone might steal something. And so then there's, then there's a compulsion to actually act on that obsessive mm -hmm. thought with an action. So checking the stove, checking the, you know, the dial on the, on the stove multiple times, checking the faucet or checking the garage door is the, you know, the compulsion to actually do something. And there's times when maybe I can stop a compulsion and maybe I have to act on it or feel I have to act on it. And I guess I've lived with the first two words without really acknowledging that it was actually a disorder mm. or anything that I could do anything about for quite a long time before I realized that it was. <laughs> yeah. So for, for much of the time, you just felt like it was just an automatic. Yeah. Not recognize it. Gosh, this is a disorder. Yeah. Something. Wow. So fascinating. Just really quickly, I love how you're defining it. Thank you. So obsessions, obsessive thinking is really the thought process. Mm -hmm. Compulsion is this need to act on that. I would imagine what you're saying is one usually follows the other. Yes, absolutely. You have the obsessive thoughts. Yeah. Then my anxiety is ramping up, and then I feel this compulsion Yeah. to act on it. Absolutely. One thing I heard that was really fascinating is that, and you tell me this is true, that process, that cycle of obsession, the compulsion, once you act on it, there's relief, but no pleasure. Yeah, that would be true. There's, yeah. no, there's no pleasure for me in, in that behavior. There's a relief from the anxiety that I feel and a momentary, momentary relief from the obsessive thinking around it, but there is no pleasure in it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think most people think like, well, you're getting some sort of, you're so driven by it, there must be some pleasure in that like other addictions, but it's, it's not that. It's not, it's not moving towards a pleasure. It's moving away from an anxiety feeling is what it is. Yeah. Boy, that's a really great way to phrase it. It's my anxiety is so intense that my obsessions and my compulsions, it's just a little relief yeah. from that. But then the cycle is still there. It's still there. And sometimes even when you check something, that obsession will come 
right back. <laughs> and you even though you literally just checked something, you'll do it again. And that's, you know, that's the obsessive part of it. It doesn't make logical sense. Even to me, it doesn't make logical sense, but it's there. And in the absence of any other way of dealing with it, the easiest thing to do is to do the thing that you're compelled to do, which is to check the switch or check the faucet. And I found some workarounds with some of these things, um, ways of handling it. For example, with the garage door, there's some, some neat devices and apps on your phone that you can get that actually tell you whether your garage door is open or closed. Um, I have an alarm system on my house, so I know every door and window is either open or closed. So those are things I don't really worry about so much anymore. Um, if they made one of those for faucets in the stove as well, <laughs> that would be, be wonderful. I'd be set. Ang anxiety hack. Right, yeah. exactly. Maybe somebody will. But uh... Scott, if you wouldn't mind, take us back. Of, I'm just so curious. When did this start for you? They, I know the statistics say that uh, onset is usually between the age of 10 to age 20. Mm -hmm. I was sort of taken aback, like, wow. Age 10 is pretty young, but maybe is that resonate for you? Or It does. I was a little younger than that. I would say eight or nine when I first recognized it. And interestingly, even at that age, I knew there was something kind of off about what I was doing. So I had this way of running when I was eight or nine where I would throw my leg back so that my foot would hit the back of my, my leg. And that impact was the, the compulsion. Like I needed to feel that in order to relieve the anxiety. And, you know, even at that age, I knew this is, this is not how everybody else runs. And I knew I was, I felt controlled. Even at that age, I could feel the controlling of it. And because it was something so visible, I couldn't do it without being noticed. And so I eventually stopped doing it because my peers were obviously seeing it and making fun of me. And I, I thought, okay, I just need to stop doing this. And I found a way to stop doing it. But then it, the, the anxiety obviously didn't stop. And so it found other ways to come out as I continue to age. Boy, it's such a great way to describe it, Scott, because I don't think most of us who don't struggle with this think about. Actually, you, because of the social pressures, you're able to adjust the behavior. But it was sort of just putting a a top yeah. on it, and it started to ooze out in other ways. Yeah, saying, absolutely. Especially as you got older. Yeah. Yeah, I found, you know, my, my brain obviously found other things to obsess over and other concerns to be anxious about. Um, so as I got older, one of them was my, my grandmother who lived next door and whether or not she made it safely to bed. So my obsession there was, you know, is she okay? Is she in bed? Um, did she fall? And my compulsion would be to check. So before I went to bed, I needed to make sure that the light was off in her house so that I could then go to bed. And if it wasn't off, then I would have to go and actually check physically that she had gone to bed. So could you literally like it was hard for you to rest or feel relief or just enough peace to be able to even go to bed yourself? Yeah, it was very I was very anxious if I looked out the window and I could see the like the light on. I couldn't see into her house because she was next door to us. So right. um, I could just see the light or no light. And that was my signal as to whether I could relax or not. So even early on in your life, you recognize, hmm, I have some anxiety. I have some interesting ways to deal with anxiety. When did you first recognize, like, oh, it might be this thing called obsessive compulsive disorder? 
I would say probably, well, first of all, I'd say I don't think I recognized I had anxiety until I was in my 40s. <laughs> um, really interesting. And I think because I, I had lived with it my entire life, I actually didn't recognize what it was. I was just so used to working at that level of, of anxious energy. And with the obsessive compulsive component of it, I was probably probably in my 30s when I started to recognize what that was and that that's actually and I didn't you know I wouldn't have said I, ha I had OCD but did I do some things obsessively yeah <laughs> now I'm you know a few years on from that I can say yeah I do have OCD absolutely like there are things that I do that are totally consistent with that and you're able to really attach that to underlying anxiety Absolutely. And I recognize when my anxiety level is higher because of something that's going on in my world, the OCD is ramped up as well. So those two go hand in hand. Definitely. Yeah. So if you wouldn't mind, Scott, I know we use this term anxiety a lot in our society. Mm -hmm. What Could you like, I always like to say, well, I always ask people, what's the difference between anxiety and depression? I always say mm -hmm. depression is about the past. Anxiety is about the future. For you, could you describe, like, when you're saying, using this term anxiety, could you describe what that is actually like for you? Yeah, I'd say uh, as a baseline, like what I grew up with, it was like a always there kind of buzzing energy that I feel like kind of around here and in my stomach. Mm. I think I was worried about a lot of things. Um, and I come from a family of warriors, <laughs> so that's not surprising to me. And... Uh, it, because it was constantly there, I never identified it as anxiety, but it was, I, I couldn't sit still without thinking about something that needed to be done or, you know, what's coming next? What should I be doing about this? What's going to break? What's, you know, and so that, that's really how I experience anxiety is when I sit still and I'm not still and my brain is not still. Um, and I've learned many practices to help myself with that. But I also know that because of who I am and, and how I grew up, I'm somebody that is going to have a level of anxiety most of the time. It's not at a level that is impossible to manage. I've experienced anxiety that, that is debilitating due to some life events, and that's very different. And I would describe that as plugging my fingers into a socket. <laughs> that's literally how that felt when my anxiety was that high. But that's not that's not my day to day. That's you know it's a low buzz of you know, what do I need to, what do I need to do? What's going on? Uh, the literature is very fascinating to me. Is that there's a high degree or percentage of actual environment and hereditary components to anxiety? Did you find that you said I came from a family of warriors? Sure. Yeah, so my, my grandmother, who I was talking about, was a warrior, <laughs> for sure. And that was kind of the environment I grew up in. You know, I was very close to her, and her whole commentary was about, you know, not doing things, oh, don't do that, don't, you know, try to avoid this. And it's certainly in my been in my parents' conversation as well, worrying about things. You know, they grew up in the um, post-war era, and so... There, were, there was a lot to worry about. <laughs> and uh, that's, to, to a certain degree, their mindset. And so I think I, I certainly have a component of that that's from the environment. And I'm sure from, you know, previous experiences they've had, and my grandparents have had too, they've had actual things to worry about that were real, you know? Yeah. 
But you even notice that, wow, that's, there's some components of this that we share in common. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else in my family has any uh, OCD. Um, not, that I'm, not that I've observed, but, you know, it's, we all grew up in the same environment. Right. Yeah. But maybe not the same behaviors yeah. to manage mm -hmm. the anxiety. Interesting. That sometimes, oftentimes, when we look at the OCD literature, that oftentimes it can manifest itself what we call co-occurring or dual diagnosis stuff, that oftentimes mm -hmm. there's anxiety will present as OCD, but sometimes there's substance abuse, there's mood disorders, mm -hmm. there's other things. Ha have you seen that in others? Or, you, you know, how, do, how does that sit with you? Is that a surprise at all? It's not a surprise to me. I mean, I, I'll be very open about my own experience um, dealing with anxiety and um, what I was aware of when I was in my teens and young adulthood was depression. Um, and that was something that I dealt with on and off and didn't really have a way of dealing with. I wasn't back then in England, we weren't seeing therapists, or at least I wasn't. Um, and so there was no treatment or medication or anything like that. So I was pretty much left to deal with it on my own. And my way of dealing with it when I was a young adult into adulthood was through alcohol. Um, it was the only way I found that could actually calm my nervous system down. Mm -hmm. And when I was feeling really depressed, it actually kind of numbed those feelings enough for me to be able to feel okay. And eventually the depression would, you know, leave and I could get back to normal life. But for sure, you know, that those two, you know, go hand in hand because when you're dealing with something that is, as a child, you know, if you have no other resource and no other coping skills, it can be quite unbearable to be dealing with anxiety and depression, um, especially when, you know, the depression is you know, persistent or severe. Um, it's a really unpleasant experience to deal with on your own. And mentioning the term alone, I, I, mm -hmm. this term lonely, I mean, I've, as a therapist for so many years, there's a pervasive theme of whatever the diagnosis or whatever, there's this underlying feeling of the loneliness is the hardestness, the hardest part, the separateness, the feeling of being different or that shame creeps in. And just hearing um, your story, it sounds like part of that, it gets real cyclical. It's sure. a snowball effect. It right? absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be incredibly difficult. Yeah. I think, you know, when I look back at my, at my youth and my teenage years, you know, I really kind of pat myself on the back for having survived. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had a, a lot of negative experiences growing up and was bullied in school for a long time. And that was something that, you know, really with, with my depression, I think made probably have been the cause of a lot of it, truthfully. Yeah. And I don't remember feeling depressed before that happened, but I certainly was afterwards. <laughs> and um, it was very isolating because, you know, I was being bullied at school for being gay. And it was at, the, at that time in the 80s, it was not something that I felt comfortable talking about with anybody, my parents included. And so it was something that I dealt with by myself or not dealt with because there was no way to deal with it, right? Yeah. And so I found, you know, at that time, it was for me, alcohol was a good way to deal with whatever I was feeling. And so that's what I did. 
I can't tell you how much I appreciate your vulnerability and sharing. Cause sure. I'm sure there's so many people out there that don't understand the multi-layered effect of this whole thing. I feel alone and then I'm bullied and then <laughs> there's my sexual orientation and all of that stuff. Multiple layers on this. Yeah. And yet you have the resiliency to persevere through. It's, you know, I'm I'm really proud of that part of me that was at that age. Yeah. You know, I can still remember it. And it was a tough experience, like going to a school every day. I had no means of getting out of that from the age of 11 to 18 and being bullied every day. And, you know, I had no no support network. I had no one to talk about it. I never talked about it, actually, because I was embarrassed about it. And so it was a really traumatic experience. You know, we talk about trauma and oftentimes I think people think of big, you know, traumatic things that happen versus something that happens over time every day. I always relate it to like being in a prison cell, like I couldn't get out of that experience no matter what I did. You know, I was going to that school every day for seven years until I graduated, whether I liked it or not. But can I ask what, what gave you, was it, how would you term it? Was it hope? I mean, I use the term resiliency, but what allowed you because I would imagine so many teenagers were seeing that sense overwhelms them. And then they look at a horrible permanent solution through suicide yeah. or whatever. I just, what allowed Scott to persevere? It's a good question. I'm stubborn. <laughs> I'm really stubborn. <laughs> and I was good at some things that, that I think helped me too. Like, I, you know, there were some things that I did enjoy at school and I had some a couple of good connections with some teachers that that I I like I didn't tell them about any of this, but I, I liked them. I liked the subjects. And I had a view of some view of a future. Like what I remember what I had in my head was I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go to university. And when I get there, I'm going to make sure that this never happens again, is what was in my head the whole time. And, you know, I did at one point um, consider suicide because I couldn't see a way out. And, and I remember that was when I was 16 and I was two years shy of graduating. But I was close enough to graduating that I knew I could get there. And so I think for, you know, I, I didn't have some of the resources that are available today I'm glad that there are resources available today in organizations like ours that help teenagers and adolescents struggling with the kind of emotions and things that I was dealing with and situations that I was dealing with so that, you know, there are ways for people to address and talk about some of the, the real life things that, that we deal with as kids. You know, it's, it's a impossible um, scenario for a child to try and deal with being, you know, being different and, you know, having to address being gay in, in an environment where it wasn't okay to be gay back then at all and being bullied for it at the same time while not being able to talk about it. <laughs> you know, like... While being anxious. <laughs> right, while oh, being anxious yeah. and depressed. Oh, um, my goodness. So that was, that was my life for, you know, seven years. So leaving high school, do you... 
do you find the escape? Do you find a new world? I what escaped, happened? but I escaped into something else. So, mm. you know, I escaped and I really, I, I had such a intent not to let that repeat itself. Um, and by then I think the, you know, that habit of using alcohol to numb my nervous system had already become an addiction. And so when I got to university, it was really easy to use that to, you know, oh, you know, it's what we do. We go out, we drink, we party. It was freshers week. You know, everybody's getting to know each other. And I was so insistent on, you know, making the right friends because I didn't want to be bullied by anybody. So I got in with the crowd of people that did all the kinds of things that I would never have done as the little innocent kid I was mm. when I was seven or eight years old. Um, and, you know, I found myself doing things that I wouldn't otherwise have done and, you know, drinking and taking substances. And was there any worry within that? I so appreciate this conversation because here you have anxiety and here you have a tendency to, you know, be anxious and want to make sure that, you know, grandma's okay and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And here you are involved with stuff that's kind of dangerous. Yeah. I'm just wondering what's happened internally for Scott. Yeah, it was a bit, it, well, there was some turmoil. I remember the first time um, I ever smoked marijuana. It was like a huge deal for me because I was like, breaking the rules so far from what I grew up with. They'd never done anything like that before. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this isn't, this isn't what I do. Like, I didn't even like the, the taste of it, the smell of it, but that's what we were doing in the room at the time. So, you know, all my friends were there and, and then, you know, with, with drinking, with, you know, drinking to excess, Unfortunately, you know, you end up doing things that are also, you know, things that you don't want to do and are embarrassing. And then there's the anxiety that comes from that and dealing with that, the humiliation of, you know, what did I do? What did I say? Um, so it just, you know, it builds and, you know, what do you do to deal with that anxiety? Well, what you've been doing all along to deal with that anxiety, you go out and you drink some more because that will take away the, uh, the anxiety. Yeah. So the cycle really builds on itself. It really does. And, and you, you know, you use that so much as a coping mechanism that you perhaps miss out on some of the other coping mechanisms that you could build when you're at university, you know, through social skills and actually developing relationships with people that can be a support for you versus, you know, you kind of as an alcoholic, you're more, you know, hiding away, trying to cope with everything on your own. And actually, you know, every time you feel bad, you're going to want to use your, your crutch, which is alcohol. Yeah. It's a way, uh -huh. to co way to cope. It's a way to cope. Yeah. And it was a way... I used for a very long time and I didn't know what I was dealing with. And there was a lot of judgment and, and kind of shaming from myself over the things that would, you know, the things I would feel like when I was really depressed, like I didn't know what that was. You know, we didn't have a school therapist back then. We weren't taught about it. So, you know, I just knew that I would have these episodes where I'd be like so sad that I couldn't be around people and I would walk away from people and shut myself away and people would notice. And I didn't, 
you know, I just felt so strange that, you know, I was behaving that way. You know, my drinking kind of, some people noticed, but most people just thought I was the party animal of, of school. And I managed to scrape through with good enough grades that I, I did okay. But, it, you know, it was, it was just a crutch. Yeah. One thing that I'd love for you to talk about is that oftentimes people want to appeal to your rational thinking. Like, it's an insight issue. Like, you just, you're just not putting two and two together, Scott, or like people have this. What I, I think is interesting, especially knowing you a little bit, such a, a bright, just insightful human being. That's not new, <laughs> right? Right. Like did, I would imagine you had the insight the whole time, but how, how did those two go together? The, the insight and yet, you know, there's physiological, emotional sure. responses. I mean, I would time. say if I, if I broke them up into two things, so there's the, the OCD part and the, and the alcohol part, right? So with the OCD, I used what I know and what I could teach myself about it. And so I tried things like exposing myself to the, you know, the stimulus over time. I would also use, I used to travel a lot for work. And so when I was in a hotel room, I didn't care so much because it wasn't my house. Mm -hmm. So I trained myself to not care about when I was in a hotel room, which gave me some safety. And it kind of lessened the anxiety around the faucet and the door and, you know. And then I would also think to myself, you know, well, if the house does burn down, I've got insurance. It's not the end of the world. So that worked for a while as a logical, you know, kind of defense mechanism. But then I got a dog and it wasn't that that didn't work anymore. Because I'm like, well, my dog's in the house. That's not, you know, I can't logic my way out of that one. Right. And with the, you know, with the addiction side of things, I've had people say before, well, you know, you can just stop drinking or, you know, if you actually try hard enough or it's just a willpower thing it actually isn't you know alcoholism is an addiction um and so when you really understand addiction and where addiction comes from it comes from you know having behaviors having anxiety underneath all of that and depression underneath all of that from you know whatever reason whether we grow up in an environment that is abusive or whether we grow up in, in an environment that's anxiety invoking or whether we're bullied at school whatever it is you know we end up with anxiety depression and a set of feelings that are really uncomfortable and you're going to want to find a way to address those so for me logically you know my I, and i've tried many logical ways of trying to address <laughs> alcoholism before i eventually <laughs> found the, the final way um you know i tried changing changing what i drank drinking on different days you know only buying this amount of alcohol because that wouldn't get me you know that drunk i would only drink on weekends and not on weekdays or never on a sunday because that was before a work day and i didn't want to be hung over um you know, every well, it self... sounds like you came up with strategies. Absolutely. But not a way to really address the core. No, because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't drinking that was really the, the underlying problem. The underlying problem was how I felt about myself um, and the feel, the intensity of the feelings. And some of it wasn't just anxiety, depression. It was, you know, sometimes it was numb. 
you know, from, I think from the um, bullying at school, the degree of trauma that I experienced, sometimes I would just be completely numb and experience these states of, um, I guess, dissociation where I felt so um, dysregulated and I was unable to make a decision. So I would sit on the couch and just, just sit there and, you know, I didn't, know whether I was going to go out, not go out, and I couldn't decide. <laughs> and it was really uncomfortable. And so that was something else that I would drink over because I couldn't stand that feeling of just that numbness and not being able to make a decision about whether something as simple as whether I was going to go out. So here's this bullying effect of feeling just ostracized and rejected. And I mean, it must have been so horrible, Scott. And where you are the relationships in your life that you rely on as a secure base is there people in your life that help to balance that out absolutely yeah i have a, a really solid network of friends um in my life today who some of whom experience the same things and and so we can relate and that's really helpful because when you can talk openly about these things you know, if you do feel anxious about something or, or, you know, depression comes back, knowing that you can talk to somebody who knows what you're talking about is really helpful. And I, you know, I have found a therapist um, that, that I work with that I like to explore different strategies and coping mechanisms for things and changing behaviors. I'm always looking at, you know, which behavior works better in which situation. So, you know, those are things I look at, but definitely a, a friendship network has been really important. Did relationship play a part in your healing journey? I would say yes, definitely. Not as in a romantic relationship, but although one of them did. So the one person I dated who actually did have OCD mm. um, was the first adult that I experienced that I actually spoke about it because we sh we couldn't really avoid talking about it because we both noticed each other's behavior. I, I wonder how that is being in a relationship right. with two or something. It was, yeah. you know, what we ended up, we, we kind of joked about it. It was funny to us because he would check one thing and I would check another thing and we would kind of laugh at each other. We're <laughs> like, all right, you check that, I'll check this, and then we'd leave. And so when we could look at it in that light, it wasn't a thing to be embarrassed about. It was just, you know, something to, to laugh about. You know, I, I think that really helped a lot. But the, the friendships that I've developed and the community that I've developed of people that have an understanding of both uh, mental health disorders, um, anxiety, depression and addiction mm. have been tremendously helpful because it, what really doesn't work is to sit back and judge yourself or anyone else for what they're struggling with. What works is to talk to somebody who actually understands what you're talking about and maybe has gone through it as well. I mean, therapists are great. As I said, I work with one, but working and talking with somebody who actually has experienced what you've experienced or are experiencing is, you know, it, it really helps you to know that you're, you're not alone. And, you know, plenty of people have experienced this and do, and there are ways to deal with it. So I'm hearing what you say, Scott, is that it actually takes a multifaceted, you know, approach. Yeah. Therapist, great. Resource, professionals, yeah. great. But also a community of people who are in this, are healing themselves. It definitely does. And I think one of the 
the dangerous things about anxiety and depression is it does naturally lend itself to isolating and being on your own. And that's definitely one of my go-to behaviors. <laughs> I'm very happy in my own company most of the time, um, but it can be to my detriment. And so I almost have to push myself to, to go out. And I think that's something that's really helped me tremendously. And if if one of those things worked on their own, it would be wonderful. Wonderful for me, it didn't. You know, I I trained as a life coach, and I've been doing personal development work since two thousand and eight. Mm. And you know, I know about changing behaviors and mindset, and and it's a very useful tool in many aspects of life. It did not address my depression, and it did not resolve my alcoholism. So I knew that that did not work on its own. And so I, you know, I continued to search and I found, you know, another program that did work for my alcoholism. And then I, you know, I found other practices that worked for my depression. And I also found that when I stopped drinking, my depression wasn't as severe and chronic as it had been. So when they take about, talk about alcohol being a depressant. Yeah. That's true. It's absolutely true. It numbs you. Yeah. There's relief in the moment, but. Boy, that exacerbated a lot of that depression. Absolutely, yeah. So what I really value, Scott, as you're saying, is that I, I use the term healing journey because even the time that we've gotten to talk mm -hmm. and you've stopped by my office, you talk about getting better and healing, but you're managing it. It's not this miracle, boom, my anxiety has gone, my OCD yeah. is completely better. It's not that. It's not. And, you know, from the day I stopped drinking, you know, alcohol, my life started to improve in many ways, physically, um, psychologically. Um, but I was also doing other things that helped build things like self-esteem, built friendship networks. I became very involved in the LGBT community and leading retreats and doing a lot of personal growth work. And those things really helped me to learn other skills and get involved in things that lifted my spirits. Naturally, they were things that I love to do. And I met people that I like to be around. And so that was another part of my healing journey was just allowing myself to experience things and get out and meet people. Um, and I And I think for myself, I feel like I'm probably going to be on this journey until I'm not, you know, I think anxiety to a certain degree is going to be with me most of my life. Um, but it's a, in a manageable way. And I think with with the OCD, it's something I continue to it interests me because it's it's a facet of me that I haven't really um, fully gotten my hands around um, ways that I can minimize it. I've tried some things and I've, and I've dabbled a little bit and I'm curious to see, you know, how far I can take that and what, I, what else I can do to allow it to be there, accept it, but also keep it to a minimum. Hmm. I'm uh, smiling, Scott, because you said I... We mentioned this healing journey, and I'm smiling because I'm like, but that journey has molded you into this incredible person that you are today. We wouldn't be sitting here having this talk. <laughs> I just I wouldn't feel so fortunate to be able to sharing this with you and you being able to share it to a whole other community without that journey. Yeah, it's an incredible thing. This this uh, 
gift we have called life. You know, I, there are many times in my life when I would not have called it a gift and I wouldn't relive my childhood for anything in the world, but I also wouldn't give up the experience I have because the amount of conversations I've had with people, the people I've coached, the people I've worked with, um, you know, and helped, I, I find that that's such a blessing to be able to share, you know, what I've struggled with to help another human being overcome what they're struggling with or even sit with it. If, if they can't overcome it right now, just be there. I really love how your journey of healing has really integrated this whole service component and giving and caring and compassion to others. And that's part of it. It definitely is. I think, you know, from the day I started becoming a coach and a life coach, um, I've always had a desire to help people become free in whatever aspect of their life they choose to. And I think working with Embark, it's kind of brought that to another level or focused it a little bit more now on young adults and adolescents. And not necessarily an age group I would have said I related to that much before because <laughs> I don't have kids, but I do relate to that young part of myself. And I can, you know, the minute I started talking to kids and parents here, I immediately, you know, could relate to them immediately because I'm like, that's exactly how I felt. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it's amazing how many adolescents and teenagers and even young adults just struggle with this feeling of ostracized and bullied and just the profound shame and rejection that comes that feels hopeless. It, and, it does. And yet you yeah. were able to find some hope in your own journey. It does. And, you know, I'm grateful that I, I grew up when I did for some some reasons. You know, there wasn't social media back then. So, you know, the, there wasn't cyberbullying and some of the horrific things kids deal with today because of that. And I, I also am grateful that I've been able to take what I experienced and turn it into something that's useful and feels good to me, too. You know, I feel like I'm I'm not in a place where I look back at my childhood and I'm terrified by it or. Um, I'm traumatized by it anymore. Like I said, I certainly don't want to go back there, but I, I can definitely use it um, to help other people. Well, Scott, we're, we're all reaping rewards from your journey and you being able to do that. Uh, just in closing, what are, you, what are you looking forward to in your life? You know, I'm looking forward to, and this is a bit of a vague answer, but I'm looking forward to what's next. I'm very used to keeping myself very busy. And I think that comes from being an anxious person. I'm used to leading retreats and teaching and coaching. And for the first time in my life, you know, I just moved to Arizona. I haven't planned a thing. So I'm actually looking forward to some downtime and seeing what comes from that, you know, what new interests might I find or people I connect with. Maybe it's more nature, but not busying myself with things. Great. Yeah. Awesome. So maybe one quick takeaway from uh, what, what is it you want everybody to know? Something that you're like, and if you're leaving here, what is it you want people? Maybe you heard something in what I shared today that speaks to you, whether it's OCD, anxiety, depression, alcoholism, any of those things that we carry shame and embarrassment about. These are things that so many millions of people deal with 
very quietly often by themselves and you really don't have to. There are ways to talk about this. There are people to talk with about these things that can actually help. And I'm one of them and, and you're one of them. And you really don't have to suffer alone in this. And Scott's a living example of that. Thank you. Just so appreciate it. One thing for me, big takeaway, is that uh, it might be OCD that's the symptom. We might be checking and counting and doing all of these other things and have obsessions and compulsive thinking, but it's anxiety and depression underneath that. And yeah. this multi-layered effect of trauma and all of these other things are, are really adding up, and yet there's hope to yeah. be able to resolve all that. Yeah. Scott, invaluable time being with you today. I just so appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. So everybody, thank you for joining sessions. Thank you to Scott. Please uh, access us wherever you access podcasts. See you next time. Mm -hmm.